Welcome to episode 109, Will My Client Hurt Someone? A Primer on Risk Assessment, featuring Robert Scholes, licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional clinical counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Robert Scholes. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed professional clinical counselor. Um, Robert and I have had the pleasure of working together for years. Uh, He's in private practice in Southern California and has a very unique specialization in crisis management and uh, threat assessment and risk management. And um, Robert, thank you for joining us today and sharing some of your knowledge on basically how we address and manage threats in our particularly child and adolescent and young adult clients. Well, thanks for having me. And I know it is kind of a topic that is, it is a hot topic in the world and one that I think people are interested in. Um, You know, I sort of came into this work, I think, through a number of uh, different experiences, you know, in my career and have really found you know, that it is kind of a, whereas sometimes these, these events happen that, you know, we, we sort of walk away like, how did that happen? You know, how, how did we get to this place where we're seeing that there are these acts of violence that are carried out on school, college campuses, workplaces? And, and at times there's sort of this, I think this kind of this idea that there's no sort of explanation for it. It's just sort of random violence. Um, I, I think part of the what I hope to we can talk a little bit about today is is that while you can't necessarily predict everything, there definitely are some things that we as professionals can be looking for. Um, also, things just that parents can be looking for to kind of help keep their kids safe. Um, if there are signs that are popping up that they may be at more risk to commit a violent act, of ways to intervene. Um, so, and that's the part of the work I enjoy is kind of, you know, we, we, we'll talk about threat assessment today, um, but also threat prevention. And, um, because I think there's probably too little discussion about that part of it. Um, and that's a part where we can, I, I think people can come together on, um, rather than always kind of being in the reaction mode or following up after the crisis has happened. Thank you, Robert. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your training and background, particularly in this crisis and risk and threat management field? Because it's something that I think is unknown to many, but is really critical to the work that we do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, like a lot of the things that we mental health professionals get ourselves into, I I don't think it was something I in graduate school I sort of imagined myself doing. Um but I, I think through a series of experiences and actually a kind of number of different fields um, sort of eventually evolved into this kind of work. So I have a pretty long background in the forensic mental health world, um, specifically working with populations of adolescents and adults who had acted out sexually and violently. And so that kind of early in my work introduced me to the the field of risk uh, prediction. And um, when we were kind of really kind of coming to terms with how do we figure out who's it, like those people that get in themselves involved in the criminal justice system, who's really at higher risk to reoffend? And so it kind of exposed me to this idea of, oh, wow, there's actually this field where people are studying how to put variables together and um, really kind of creating these um, really sophisticated models of risk prediction for people that had had histories of acting out. Okay. And so that's, that's one, that's one field and kind of they introduced me to that. And then I spent a long time in university mental health and working on a college campus where, you know, uh, amazing work, really gratifying work. And at the same time, it's a place where a lot of crises happen. And so I'm pretty Soon after I got into that field, um, I was asked to go and do some more kind of deeper dive training into crisis management, responding to disasters on college campuses. And so it's been kind of an evolution in terms of how 
my different sort of experiences have kind of dovetailed into each other. And part of that work on a university campus is that, you know, inevitably there would be threats of, of violence, some which were serious and really needed a very serious response and others which were, you know, um, less serious, but needed some sort of intervention. Um, and so I have a lot of interest too in kind of understanding, you know, first of all, these things don't happen in isolation. And, and so threats and crises not only sort of affect the, the person that has made the threat, but there may be the person, you know, there's obviously the person that they've made the threat towards, but also all the other people around it. And kind of knowing how to, you know, realize that all, many people are affected when risk or threats happen and how to respond, how to help systems develop a really effective response so that, you know, the needs of the larger community are taken care of. You know, when we look at like school shootings, it's like, you know, it's, there's oftentimes a focus on the families or the victims of the shootings, but then there's all the other people in that community or in that school that like sort of figuring out kind of how to respond to what their needs are post-crisis is also part of the work I do and helping systems kind of figure out what is needed. I am glad you bring up that piece of the community at large and the system. I know you and I have both been through that here in Thousand Oaks where we had the borderline bar shooting in 2018, in November of 2018, and seeing just the fallout in our community, um, how significant that's been for all of us, not only as mental health providers, but as community members and how scary. Um, I think you're right. We really focus a lot on the victims or their families, but it's this impact on the community at large. And someone like you understanding how all those pieces fit together when the rest of us are kind of thrust into this, not really knowing how to respond when these bad things happen. Um, and then, as you brought up, prevention. So why don't you start by telling us really about the field of threat management? Like, really, what what is that? Because it's not something I think that many of us really know much about. Well, and it's it's a relatively new um, field, you know, I mean, while there's, there's always been threats and um, I think for many, many years, it was, um, it was a field that was oftentimes reserved for like law enforcement um, folks. And so, you know, police, you know, and other law enforcement, you know, professionals, they were typically the main people they were involved in sort of managing like a threat situation and, and, and having relationships with lots of those, you know, folks, I mean, they have, you know, some of them, that's sort of what they specialize in. They have amazing training in. Um, <clears throat> but I think as sort of threats and situations have evolved, there's kind of an appreciation that there's probably a need to have um, multiple perspectives at the table. And so I think, you started seeing more psychologists um, get involved in the work over the last 20 years and really an appreciation for, um, you know, this idea of having, having a threat management team, whether in a workplace or in a university, really does need multiple perspectives. Um, it's, it's one of the dangers, I think, is sometimes if, if, it, if one perspective takes over, um, you know, we're all biased. And so I think the idea of threat management is having multiple people that have a stake in the situation be able to sit down and have some sort of guided process, um, you know, in a systematic process to really identify the situations or the person of concern, figure out kind of how to investigate or gather relevant data um, about the situation, um, you know, how to interview a person that has made a threat or those that have been threatened to really gather the relevant data and then to kind of use that data to make an informed decision about how to mitigate the risks involved um, and then come up with a management plan. Um, because, you know, while there are some situations that are you know, may lead to an immediate sort of expulsion of the person making the writ, making the threat. 
There are also many other situations where that threat may not reach the threshold where that is the outcome, especially when you're talking about kids and teenagers and even college students. Um, you know, the truth is, is that, you know, uh, when people are younger folks, and I would even argue that some adults, you know, sometimes we make really, um, really crazy, stupid comments that come from a really emotional place, but that there's really not a necessarily an intention that we're going to follow through with it. But then it's kind of like, how do you live in community or in a workplace with someone that maybe they aren't really deemed to be a high risk, but now I have to live around them. And how do we manage that kind of situation? So you need a process. You need to kind of figure out how to take everybody's perspectives into consideration. And and that's really what threat management is about. It's a it's a process. It's guided by some rules and um, some guidelines to really help, you know, like I've kind of alluded to, like a management team make some of the best case decisions for the community in which the threat has occurred in. When we're looking at the goals of a threat management team um, and a threat assessment process, what are we really looking to achieve? Well, I think there's a couple different things you're you're probably looking for. I mean, one of course is you're trying to trying to get a, a, a hopefully a good assessment of the true riskiness of the person that's made the threat. And and so whether that's an individual or, you know, in some situations you'll see more than one individual make a threat um, or a group is a threat <clears throat> to um, another group of people. But it's to really try to get the best assessment of how serious of a risk is this. Um, but then it's also, you know, again, and I th- I'm kind of because most cases are um, not always super clean in terms of if this is really severe, this person, you know, uh, or the, the threat has been acted on, it's trying to figure out what are the needs. So both a risk and needs is part of the work of a threat management team to lower the risk factors. And so, you know, whether that means, you know, the person that's made a threat and, you know, it's identified they have some, you know, significant mental health issues or there's substance abuse concerns or, um, you know, whatever it is, how to lower those risk factors as well as maybe even bring into the equation um, some guidelines about contact with between persons. So, you know, oftentimes I'm asked to do like a threat assessment of a, a college student. And so, you know, and, and, and in many cases, I would say probably in half the cases, it involves, you know, a student who has either made a threat, um, you know, of violence or, um, you know, or is involved in some sort of inappropriate um, level of engagement with another student, like a stalking behavior and whatnot. And it's to, in those cases, again, there's there's a range of seriousness and severity, and, and it's really important to take into consideration everybody's, you know, position on the situation. But oftentimes, even if there's maybe been a suspension um, or some sort of, a, you know, some sort of punitive action, oftentimes, you know, they, they are still maybe living in community with each other. So how do you lower the risk factors? Or, or if the person is suspended, how do you put a protection of order in place um, and monitor that and kind of make sure that that takes place? Um, you know, ultimately, you know, you, you're, and especially with young people, and this is, I think, where it gets a little harder. It's like we're trying not to, you know, the 11-year-old or even the 15-year-old that makes a threat, we're not trying to kind of get to, get to a place where we're unnecessarily labeling them as this dangerous person who now should never, you know, should be sort of kicked out of a community because that's probably not helpful for most of those kids. Um, at the same time, you want to prevent harm. You want to hopefully increase the person's skills to know how to manage, you know, their emotions better, um, but also really trying to make sure the people that maybe had been 
if there was a specific person that had been named, making sure they feel safe too. So there's sort of, these get tricky in, in cases, especially in school settings, because you can imagine, you know, you have parents involved and, you know, parents are going to find out that there's maybe been a threat or something made at their school or, you know, even more specifically against their child and how that's going to be managed in a way while you also have the person that's maybe made the threat that is um, has their own parents and their own perspectives on what's happening and doesn't want to see their kid, you know, be sort of, you know, excluded and kicked out. Um, so it's, again, it's this really um, tough balancing act that I think threat management teams play. And yet it's so critical because when you talk with um, students, I was thinking of a situation more recently where I, I wasn't involved with either, you know, the intended victim of a threat or the, the perpetrator of the threat. But I was just involved with a kid who had been a student at the school where the threat had become, had gotten out um, and had sort of been broadcast over social media. And, and so, you know, so this kid was just trying to kind of figure out, you know, am I safe? And so, and, you know, what information is the school going to share with me about this? You know, because even though I'm not the person they made the threat to, um, I'm not feeling safe now. And I now feel the school owes me some explanation for what's happening here. Um, And it obviously challenges things like students, you know, rights to privacy and, um, you know, confidentiality and all those sorts of things. But in today's world, you know, that's oftentimes you will have some sort of what, you know, it's oftentimes referred to as leakage where, you know, knowledge of a threat comes out and what do schools do to reduce the impact of that and manage that. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, obviously this is very complicated because you're managing both what's happening with the perpetrator of the threat, but then also potential victims or just other community members. So when we're looking at the overall process, it's first starting with as accurate as we can, um, an assessment of the riskiness of the person that's made that threat, evaluating the risks and needs of that person, addressing the risk factors, assisting the person who's been threatened and been affected, and then preventing future harm. That's a lot of consideration. Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah. That's quite a list. Like there, there are a number of factors there, and I know for me as a private practitioner, um, these concepts are, are scary because in California we have laws that are very explicit about basically when you can cross that line, when we can break privacy and can contact the authorities, and and not only can but almost when we're necessitated. Um, and it's it. So when you're talking about those more nebulous situations. <laughs> I I think a lot of us have no idea how to even begin yeah. to address that. So if we're talking about a client and, and risk of suicide, we can pull out certain questionnaires and we know who to call. But this whole idea of the other side of it, of, of a threat of harm to others, I think is something that a lot of us don't have very much information or training about. Yeah. And I mean, even though it's there are things that we we clearly are, you know, when we take our state licensing exams, you know, we're asked about things like Tarasov and we're, we're expected to know about that. But I, I do think, I don't know that it's been intentional, but I think there's been a lot of emphasis and awareness raised about with mental health professionals about the importance of knowing how to do an effective suicide assessment and probably less emphasis and training on how to do a violence assessment Mm -hmm. that tends to be sort of reserved for, you know, I think, I think unfortunately it's fallen into folks that do forensic psych evaluations um, or people that kind of work in populations of folks that have been violent rather than sort of just kind of viewing it as, you know, and we know, we know that people who, you know, there's a certain group of people that are suicidal that also are having thoughts about hurting other people that, you know, it's not the large majority, but 
but I do think it's it's one of those topics that I, I think I don't think you're alone, and I, I think it's for many that they're really get, they get scared about what's going to happen if I find this out. I agree. And to explain for our listeners that aren't to California, Tarasov was um, a case. It was Tarasov versus the Regents of University of California in the 1970s that created a law that made it so that mental health professionals are mandated to report under certain circumstances when there is an identified victim um, of potential, some kind of potential risk or threat. And and I know other states have similar laws, but then for me, it's kind of this... Um, situation that is scary and tenuous because I, I don't know what I would reach for. Um, so thank goodness for people like you that have a specialization that can share it and say, here's what you need to be looking for. Um, so why don't we start by talking about those kind of red flag behaviors? What do we as practitioners need to keep our eyes open uh, about and our ears open for? Yeah. I mean, I think there's some um, there's some pretty more direct ones that when you hear them, you're going to be like, oh, well, that makes sense. And then I think there are sort of some more of the indirect factors. But I'll maybe kind of talk more specifically about some of the ones that are absolutely critical. Um, and and these, are, these are definitely some of the items that are, um, that are utilized in some of the structured interview assessments that we do, which we can maybe talk a little bit more about later. Um, but, you know, I think the first one is very simple is that if if someone is communicating any sort of direct threat of violence towards someone and has any sort of plans and so it's like the question of do you have any plans you know or desire to hurt another person you know it's a very direct question but if you're hearing you know you have a client come in your office and they're going off on you know another student in school or they're going off on a parent and you're really picking up a lot of anger and they're using language that seems pretty violent, you're going to want to dive into that and, you know, acknowledge, you know, thank you for, you know, letting me know, you know, you're really having some strong feelings about Johnny um, and, and, you know, such strong feelings that, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, like, you know, what your thoughts are and what you think you might do to Johnny, you know, when you leave here today or between, you know, now and the next time we meet, like not being afraid to go there. But when people are to that point where they're verbalizing direct threats, um, it's really important to follow up on that. Now, you know, like we might be saying, well, duh we would do that but I, I think there's a lot of ways we sort of we sort of get around wanting to go at that and i think it's that well i've known this client for a long time and um i know they're not violent and we sort of sort of rationalize not seeing the potential for the violence because we know them when the truth is you, you know we have to kind of look more this is when I think sometimes it's kind of like when you're in any other kind of crisis situation. There's sometimes a place where we're challenged, where we have to step out of our role as a therapist and doing therapy, and we move into kind of a place where we're having to evaluate a little bit more. And that's tricky, and that's sometimes hard. And it's kind of like when you have to do a suicide evaluation with someone, um, because you're needing to gather some specific information not only to keep your clients safe, but potentially other people safe, which is sometimes tricky. So I think there's obviously the direct communication. It's something, and, you, and sometimes you just have to ask about it. And so sometimes they may be alluding to it, and it's kind of like if somebody's alluding to suicide, you need to ask directly and not be concerned about, well, you know, I'm going to plant this idea in their head. If it's there, it's there. And just like suicide, I find sometimes when people are in that kind of a really violent mindset, like just being able to open it up and talk about it, it helps to begin the process of um, mitigating some of the risk um, or getting them to a place where they're not going to act on it. Um, I think the other thing is just the other one that's a big one. Again, it's going to sound obvious. It's just, do they have access to weapons? Do they have access to how they would, 
you know, what they're talking about doing. And so it's, it's not only, especially if you're dealing with a minor, but I would argue even with an adult, um, it's asking them directly. So, you know, if they're making comments like, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go stab this person or I'm going to go shoot, I'm going to go shoot this person. It's kind of testing that out. You know, it's like, well, you know, tell me about your access to guns right now, you know, in your house, you know, what do you have access to, um, outside your house? You know, if you wanted to get a gun, how easy would it be for you to do that? Where would you get that from? Um, that sort of thing. But I also think it's then, you know, needing to kind of figure out a way to get some collateral data from others around the person, you know, because sometimes they're not going to be completely honest with you. And so it's asking parents, you know, are there weapons in the house? And, oh, yeah, we have them and they're locked up and they're in the gun safe. And, um, well, you know, who has the combination to that safe or who has the keys to the safe? And, you know, just how safe is that safe in terms of keeping them away from those weapons? Um, you know, I think also just kind of the idea of how obsessed are they? So it's not only do they have the plan or access, but how developed is their plan? How obsessed are they with this? How much have they been kind of playing this out in their head over a period of time? Um, and so, you know, simple questions like, you know, you know, how, how long have you had these thoughts? Um, you know, what level of detail do you have about how you would, you know, you know, this would play out? Um, trying to get at how developed is the plan? Or is it just kind of in a, I'm pissed off at this person state um, and really not into a full-blown plan, how I'm going to implement this thing state? It's really important to discern that. So when you're looking at the development of the plan, in terms of any research, is there a correlation then between the development of the plan and how detailed it is basically and the likelihood that there could be then some violent act? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, I think one of the myths that we, we, we sometimes think, well, you know, these things just kind of happen. And when you, when they've kind of done sort of a in-depth analysis of school shootings or workplace shootings, the overwhelming majority of the time is that they see that there was actually a lot of planning involved. There was a lot of research involved. And so, um, so again, you know, what I can say is that, you know, the, the, the only data we have is when sort of a postmortem analysis is done of these kind of cases and they've gone back and they can usually see that, oh, wow, there was a lot. And, and not only was there kind of looking at how to do it, but they may have had some trial runs. Um, they may have really, they were really kind of trying to even work out the kinks in a plan. Um, this wasn't something they just sort of arbitrarily woke up one day and said, well, you know, I think I'm going to go take a gun to school. Usually there was a lot of advanced planning. So what do you do in the cases where you have one of those clients that let's pretend is the one that's made the threat and you're trying to evaluate in session with them, but nothing is overt enough where it's, you know, reportable. And obviously for our listeners, that's dependent on what your different state laws are, but we're no longer, we're not in the, the realm of a duty to report we haven't crossed into that line. What do we do as practitioners when a client says, yeah, I, you know, I've actually been doing a lot of research about XYZ weapon and how he could be utilizing it and when it's most efficient. And what is our correct response as a practitioner that does not have specialized training in threat management? Well, I think it's, it's like we do hopefully in other situations where we kind of start to feel like something's a little bit out of our, out of our league. Um, or is not in our area of expertise, you know, we, we sort of have people that we can call up and consult with. Um, and you can get another, you can get another perspective on it. You know, in California, you know, we have, you know, our California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, and they have a legal, you know, response, um, you know, great group of professionals that we can kind of call and run a scenario by, um, I think, you know, if in doubt, I think, you know, the worst situation to be in is sort of leaving, having a client leave your office with doubts. And so I think, you know, 
in some situations like where, and I, and I would, I would say that most of the times this has been with minors or college students that I've had to do this is, you know, it's kind of like, I, I need to kind of let somebody know that you're struggling and I'm not comfortable with you leaving here until I know, because I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate what you're telling me. Um, and to help keep you safe and to make sure others are safe until we kind of understand this a little more clearly. Um, I've got to get some other people involved to help this feel like it's okay um, and help me feel like we're in a good place. And it's tough because, you know, you run the risk at that point. They may shut down on you. They may not want to talk to you further. Um, but I think it's always like, where do you want to err? Um, do you want to err on the side of not doing enough or do you want to err on the side of, you know, maybe a little bit of an overreaction? But I, I would argue that when you're trying to keep people safe and you're trying to get more information, um, I would rather err on that side. And even if it means I kind of have to, you know, really talk because otherwise then it's a, you know, if it's, if it's really questionable, if I have some really outstanding questions about, is this person going to be safe? You know, in some situations, is my, am I going to need to call like a county crisis team, you know, to further assess them? Um, and I might, I might need to do that. Or if I felt like there was some immediate danger and they were kind of being maybe a little gamey with me about access to weapons or where they were going when they were going to leave um, or became, you know, maybe more enraged in session where they were kind of becoming little more uncontrollable and even in my presence again kind of needing to create the safety and you know as you know many attorneys have told me you know what always err on that side um you know it's it's harder when you you let something go and then you have something a mass sort of disaster happen i think it's a really scary consideration for every clinician you know, whether we're talking about risk of violence um, to others or self, it still opens up this can of worms, I think, that's terrifying for all of us in not wanting to misstep, you know, wanting to to be as careful and as prudent as we can be to reduce the risk, not only to our clients, but to other people around them. Um, so you had mentioned kind of some of the things that we'd be looking for. So how detailed is their plan? Do they have access? I mean, I know one thing that comes up for me in talking about this, um, I remember in UC Santa Barbara, the use of a car as a weapon. And so it also, that for me opens up its own can of worms of like many of us have access to things that could absolutely be dangerous for other people. Um, how do you assess that? And, and what are some other red flags and risk factors that we need to know as clinicians to, to be um, keeping an eye out for? Yeah. And like, so like you're pointing out, it's the, the range of ways people might go and hurt someone, you know, they're, they're sort of the, what we would think are more the obvious common ones. Um, but then there, there are other ways people could hurt, hurt someone. So, you know, you do your best, but you know, you want to kind of go through and then as you maybe go through some of the more obvious ones, you know, then you ask maybe more of an open-ended question. You know, I've mentioned some specific things about ways you might hurt other people. But, you know, are there any other things you've thought about in terms of how you might hurt people um, that I haven't brought up so far? And, of course, you're, you're sort of relying on them to fill in the blank, but at least you've given the opportunity for them to speak into that a bit more. You know, I think kind of some of the other risk factors, I, I think some of the people really holding on to resentments and grudges, um, sort of keeping a list. And we've seen that in a number of the, the shooters is they've sort of had a list of people that have wronged them. And so if you're kind of hearing that, you know, um, and again, you know, people get hurt. It's not that in therapy, people talk about people that have hurt them. That's, that's one thing. And that's great. And in most cases, that's a cathartic thing for people but it's that kind of over obsessing on it and it's the kind of not letting go of it and it's this really like when you're trying to kind of do some work around it it's like they're really digging into it 
and really finding lots of data to support why they should hold on to the resentment. And and you can kind of notice that, and, and it's and what it leads to is it leads them to kind of feel like the world is a really unsafe place. It's uh, it's unjust. Um, I'm not safe, and I've got to protect myself. So it, you really kind of notice like this this really strong sense of you know like like victim stance kick in where they are really set in that quite a bit. Um, you know, there's other things, especially I think when you see kids and adolescents, like when they're they're writing about the violence or they're drawing about the violence. Again, it could just be cathartic, could be something they're getting out. But I think, you know, we we do know that they're, you know, again, that's some for some that's part of the planning process. It's I'm going to put pen to paper and I'm going to start thinking about this. And as they start to write about it, it, it starts to become more real in their head. Um, so again, it doesn't mean everybody who writes or draws about something that's violent means they're going to be violent, but you got to check it out, you know, which is why we try to educate teachers about that. And, you know, you know, anybody who's around kids or parents, like, you know, don't just kind of rule that out as, oh, that's just, you know, you know, Sam being creative and, <laughs> um, him having a nice outlet for his negative emotions. It's probably worth a discussion um, about what that means. And that, and that again, and who's oftentimes seen those sorts of things? Well, you know, it's not a mental health professional. It's a teacher, it's a parent, and it's sort of teaching them how to, you know, maybe ask some, you know, little deeper questions, but then also knowing how to refer to someone that can do a more full assessment of the person. Um, I, I talked to about the whole leakage thing. That's a big, that's a big issue. Um, usually somebody knows about it. Usually somebody has some information about the attack, um, or a, a planned attack. And whether that's because of something they've posted on social media or they have a confidant, you know, they have a friend who they've been talking with us about. It's rare that no one knows about it. Okay. What, unfortunately happens in many of these situations is that person either is scared to go tell someone or they think, well, you know, I don't think they'd ever do that. You know, I have known them for a long time. That's just them being pissed off. Um, So it's teaching people, you know, and I think, you know, in schools and workplaces, you know, we talk about this topic of bystander intervention and, you know, the importance of teaching people to know how to respond to a variety of concerning behaviors, whether it's depression or suicide or threats of violence. Like, how do you, how do you help be part of the solution um, in the community you're living in when you see something that isn't, doesn't feel right? I think this conversation about the community and the point you just hit on about um, teachers, parents, this exposure to these things beyond just us as behavioral health clinicians. And for, for us then, as the providers, knowing how to support others in an, in an appropriate response, um, I can see as the other part of the equation. So it's not just us being in the room and saying the right things, asking the right things for that that young person. You know, in this case, we're talking about adolescents and young adults. But then also, like, how do we talk with parents or with teachers about like, hey, this is what I'm seeing and this is what's happening and here's what needs to happen now. So so when we're at the point where we we do believe that this person is checking a lot of those boxes, then what? Well, I think... You know, if it's your client, you know, uh, then I think it's having to take the appropriate steps to inform the people that can either provide protection or get people, get the person to a place of safety. And I mean that, you know, I think when you, when you talk, you know, we have what, what's not talked about or, you know, put out in the media is that there, um, there are many more threats that are stopped than those that actually play out. And, and that maybe could give you a peace of mind or maybe scare you a little bit more depending on your situation. But, but the truth is we've gotten better at this and we're, we're, 
able to be more responsive to threats now than we than we used to because we we have a system and a way of doing it. But I think it's just not being afraid to just like if you were having a a, a client who was suicidal. I think that's the thing I would challenge people to do is like if this was they were thinking about really seriously harming themselves, what would you do? You would call in other people. You would surround them with support. You may look towards hospitalization um, or some other sort of you know intervention. You may, and I hate doing it, but if it's truly like where you have a client who's out of control and you're starting to talk about this and they're becoming increasingly agitated and you may need to call the police to contain the situation. Okay. It, it's, I think it's probably rare that that's where it would have to be. And, but, you know, again, sometimes when people are in a, a state of mind um, where they're really kind of committed to doing what they want to do, I mean, the fact that they're talking with you about it, I would point out is a good thing. Okay. You know, again, we sometimes talk about, we talk about suicide ambivalence and people kind of can, when they're talking about kind of both sides of it, like, in some ways, that's a good thing that they're able to kind of talk through that, and it means they have some questions about it. If they're bringing up these this idea that they would want to be violent with some other person, and they're telling you about it, there's probably a part of them that you know has thought this probably isn't a good idea, um, and is open to some intervention, or they else wouldn't be talking with you, um, you know, and, and so. It's having to sometimes do the uncomfortable thing, which is, you know, as clinicians, we're oftentimes, you know, protect their confidentiality. We, you know, I don't want to break trust. Well, just like oftentimes with suicide, there's sometimes you have to look sort of at the greater good, which is saving somebody's life, um, and deal with the other part afterwards, which is, you know, might need to repair you know, your relationship with your client, which sometimes really does have to happen once you go through a crisis situation with them like this. But I'd rather deal with that later. It sounds like one of the themes I'm hearing is just basically for clinicians to not be afraid of addressing things head on. Like this is that there isn't much room for kind of dancing around it. It's to ask direct questions and then to be clear in um, your clinical interpretation that there's now a higher need that we need to do something. It's not just enough to, to discuss it, but then there are steps that we need to take as providers. It could be call, calling the emergency response team. It could be calling 911 um, and to not be um, ten, too tender, I guess, in doing that. It's like you, sometimes you just need to be upfront and forward about it and address it head on. Yeah. And I think the other thing I would recommend, like if this is maybe an ongoing client, um, is yeah, you'd probably and you and you you feel like you've done everything you need to do and you've created a safety plan to where and you know you have a parent or other people that you feel like are on board, but you probably want to see them again pretty quickly and see if this was just sort of a transitory sort of heightened affective state or is this something that is kind of setting in more and. So the follow-up and, you know, really, you know, making sure, you know, you're just documenting very specifically the things you're asking, their specific responses to your questions. Um, again, you know, you want to do that anyway in terms of just good clinical documentation, but, but it's also, you know, you're, you're protecting yourself too as a professional if you're ever asked questions. You know, did you ask this question? Because that's what they're going to ask you. One of the things I think as part of a good assessment is, you know, the importance of, you know, having a structured plan of how you're going to make a determination of, of what the person's risk is. Um, there are, you know, different guides out there. Um, I'll talk about just two of them. Um, you know, one is the SIVRA, S-I-V-R-A 35 um, which was developed by uh, the National Behavioral Intervention Team Association. Um, uh, NABIDA is what that organization is referred to. And if you go to nabida.org, um, you actually can access um, some pretty amazing resources. They make them available um, 
to folks under the resource section and the assessment tools section um, that can really kind of give you some guidance about, you know, what are the items that you should be asking about. These are definitely developed specifically for kind of more school settings. Um, but when you look at the risk factors, they're the risk factors that um, that really would apply, you know, even to folks in like a workplace setting, how you would maybe word the questions would be a little bit different. Um, and, and so what you're doing there, again, there's what's a little bit different, I think, with this kind of risk assessment it's not risk prediction. There's no way we can predict because like whether somebody's going to do it or not, or whether they're going to commit an act of violence. What you're trying to do is at least get some sort of uh, gauge on how significant of a threat is this and what do we need to do to reduce the threat. If we know somebody has a weapon, for example, we need a pretty strong intervention that probably would include law enforcement, um, and would, we would be working in conjunction with other people um, and would need immediate action and, and so on and so forth. If we're dealing with a situation where, you know, a kid is really, you know, has been bullied a lot, is dealing with some depression, um, you know, is feeling really isolated, um, you know, and has made, you know, some sort of comment about, you know, I just wish these other kids were dead in the school. That's a serious comment, but there's maybe no real specific target. There's no real specific plan about how they're going to do it. And it's going to require a different level of intervention. Um, so, you know, that's going to definitely change, you know, how we respond to the person. Um, the other, the other tool that is commonly, and I think is also a good tool, um, is referred to as the waiver 21, which is the workplace assessment of violence risk. And it's developed to be used in workplaces and on campuses. And it's, it's 20, whereas the SIVRA 35 is 35 items. The waiver 21 is a 21 item tool that really, you know, gives you some guidance about how to ask questions to be able to score that item and with either of these tools, of course, you know, you, these are things you, you need to get training in. And both of them offer trainings, you know, throughout the country. Um, but they, but they're really important. If you're going to, but if you're a clinician, I think just being able to, to be able to notice what are the variables that are most important, um, that in terms of your, your, assessment as a clinician, these are good places to start. Obviously, if you're kind of doing more kind of work like I do, where somebody's been referred to me, you know, by a workplace or school where I'm actually doing a really official threat assessment, then absolutely, you, you, you know, you, you have to go and get more specialized training to be able to, you know, really speak into these things. So, yeah. So as clinicians, if we've identified that somebody has some risk factors, let's say, that they're, they don't have any specific identified um, victim, let's say, and that they have relative access to means, but nothing super specific, and we as clinicians are out of our depth. So it's like, we like let's pretend we even call the psychiatric emergency response team. They come and do an assessment. And they're like, this person is not, you know, dangerous enough where we need to take them and do an involuntary hospitalization when we know we're out of our depth, how do we then connect that client, assuming they're an existing and active client, how do we connect them with the right resources and what would that look like? I mean, I'm I'm at an unfair advantage in that I have folks like you in my network that I can call and say, hey, you know, let's let's consult and, and then, you know, potentially a collaborative relationship and work together. For clinicians that don't have that, how how do they find people that, know how to address this kind of stuff and basically not continue the plan as usual and yeah. hope that everything's going to be okay. Well, I, I think just like I think, you know, we, we all kind of keep in sort of our, the Rolodex in our mind about other issues um, that if that are kind of outside of our scope, I think this is one of the things you do in advance. You sort of ask yourself the question, okay, so who would I call? And ask questions in your community or in your professional organizations 
about you know who does this work. Another resource that you could you could utilize um, is an organization called the Association for Threat Assessment Professionals, which is a um, national organization, um, and um, you likely could contact them, and they have a list of people in the area that would have some expertise. Um, you know, not everybody that does this kind of work is a member of that organization, but I think it's it's reaching out to the professionals, um, the organizations that, you know, have expertise in this kind of work. Um, absolutely. Thank you for those those resources for the people who don't necessarily have somebody that they work closely with that has a specialization like this. Um, when we're talking about particular client factors that make somebody at higher risk. So it's not just, you know, their ability to um, to clearly describe a detailed plan or obsessive thinking, let's say. But when we're looking at, hey, you know, this this particular demographic we see is, as having more struggles of, the, of this type, does that really exist with threat management? You know, differences between, um, you know, are there uh, socioeconomic factors that are con- contributing? How about gender? Um, all of these different variables, are they that relevant for us as providers to know what they are? Yeah, and I think we the answer is in general we really talk about to be careful about any kind of profiling and sort of look like well this is a person who looks like somebody who's going to commit an act of violence um which is why it's really important to stay um focused on more of the descriptors and objectively what we're observing and hearing rather than kind of looking at you know, I mean, even though, of course, you know, we'd be oblivious to say that, you know, to ignore the male factor <laughs> that, you know, the most shootings that we see are, are done by, are done by boys and men. Um, but, you know, again, it doesn't say, doesn't mean that there, there couldn't be, a, a, you know, a younger girl or, you know, young woman that wouldn't also have those thoughts. So, it's trying, and, and as well, you know, in terms of there's there's no real data in terms of the socioeconomic factor or race. You know, when we when we look at these things, you know, we, we see that people are all across the board, and so being very careful. I think I think people have an idea of what a violent person looks like. Yeah, a profile and would, definitely. And I, would, and I would encourage people to kind of put that out of their mind that that's not helpful. What's more helpful is looking at more objective data and variables that we are no, we know are associated with violence, rather than kind of some of the easy, um, you know, things that of how a person looks or how a person, you know, the content of how they talk is important. I'm I'm glad that we hit upon this topic because I I mean, harken back to Columbine and then there was this whole thing about trench coats. You know, that it was like, yeah. those are the kids that we need to be watching. And and I think what you're saying is don't get so laser focused on any of these particular elements, whether it's the person's gender or, you know, just their what group they're in. Are they popular or whatever it is? And don't let that blind you. Right. And are they a good student? That's one I oftentimes hear. Well, they're a great student. You know, they have they have they have a lot of future success and possibility. Well, the Columbine shooters were really good students. Okay, they were on the honor roll. So that's not again. It's it's one of those things that that I think, and I think it's one thing as as parents that puts blinders on parents, even though they might be seeing some concerning behavior. You know, like in that case, you know, like where they're looking up things about how to make explosives and they have access to weapons, and there was knowledge about a lot of concerning things. But there was also sort of in, the, in their mind, well, you know, my kid's going to school every day. They're getting good grades. Um, it's learning to kind of learning to coexist with all the data and knowing how to respond, um, not over respond or sort of zero in on just the data that sort of supports what we want to see. Um, and that's hard as a parent. You know, you want you want to see your kid as a safe kid and they would never potentially do that. But when you listen to parents of people who have committed acts of mass violence, um, they are heartbroken and they are going back and 
you know, trying to put the pieces together. And unfortunately, in many situations, they, they do come to the conclusion like, oh, man, I missed it. Or there were some things I, I should have paid attention to. I think you hit on a really important point there is like we want we want to believe that people are safe. I think even for us as providers, it would be uneasy to be in a room with somebody and then even acknowledge like, oh, my goodness, the person that's sitting across from me, I think isn't safe. And I imagine parents don't want to have that conversation with themselves either. Like, oh, my goodness, my child could be a danger to others. Um, there's so much more that we could talk about on this topic. Um, one thing I know that, of course, that I learned in my master's program heard come up and on assessments, you know, we ask, do you have a history of harming animals? Do you have a history of lighting fires? Are there any correlates there that really should be raising a flag for us on assessment, um, even if there's no um, no mention of desire to hurt anybody else? Is that actually one of those things that we need to be listening to? Or is it one of the other pieces of information that just kind of we need to be screening and, as you said, primarily listening for what, what we're being told, not trying to file it away into some demographic information? Yeah, no, I think you, you touched on a couple of of variables there, I think, especially with younger kids, you know, are they not that, and, and we know that, of course, you know, empathy is something that develops, you know, over, you know, the, you know, many, many years and into the, a person's 20s. So it's being careful not to quickly, you know, diagnose the kid as a, you know, conduct disorder or a psychopath kind of thing early on. But it's being conscious of, you know, what developmentally, you know, like normally how would young children act around animals and how would they treat animals? And if you're getting reports from the kid or the kids coming, coming in and talking about how you hurt an animal or the parents are telling you, yeah, he, you know, he really, you know, he did this awful thing to our pet. The light should go on. It's something, something's happening there. Does it mean they're going to commit violence towards other people? Not necessarily, but it means that like they're they're not sort of tuned in with how what they do affects other people. You know, if they're getting school reports back that, you know, they're, you know, they're doing pretty outrageous things, they're being violent or not following the rules despite lots of attempts to kind of redirect and intervention, absolutely is a sign. Um, you know, I think Definitely, too. You know, we do, we do know, again, the majority of kids that get bullied never go on to commit acts of violence. So we can't say that there's this direct correlation between being bullied and acting out violently. And we do know that a large number, whether it's bullying or feeling excluded um, or not kind of having their place or having a peer group or having, you know, people that are meaningful in their life. Um, is definitely something we want to pay attention to. Um, so, you know, I think it's, so it's like as parents, you know, like people ask me, like, what do you do to prevent this? How do you prevent your kid from, you know, from doing this? And, you know, it's how do you, how do you develop, you know, those caring traits in your children? How do you put them in situations where they begin to develop traits of empathy? If they are showing signs of emotional distress, being responsive to them early and not waiting and thinking they're going to outgrow it. It's really being attuned in and attentive to your, your younger child. I like that you brought up not only the risk factors, but then the protective factors. You know, do they have caring adults? Do they do they have a network of people that are that are monitoring them? And that idea of um, feeling like you're part of the community. Um, so balancing both sides of that then as, as mental health professionals too. It's not just looking for risk factors. It's also looking for protective factors as well. Um, Robert, I know you and I could probably talk a very long time about this, and I'm grateful for you coming and talking with us a little bit about some of the things we need to keep in mind when we're considering um, someone's real threat level and what to do when we are out of our depth um, and, and what we reach for. What are some other resources that you recommend? I know you you mentioned uh, NABITA, so N-A-B-I-T-A um, is one of the national organizations involved in uh, threat and behavior assessment. What else has been really helpful and where can we reach for resources? Yeah, I think the Association for Threat Assessment Professionals, ATAP, is what it's referred to. 
is a great is a great resource. Um, there is a model of threat threat assessment intervention that is has been utilized a lot in more of the K through 12 model, which is called the Dewey Cornell model, D-E-W-E-Y Cornell, C-O-R-N-E-L-L. Um, that's out of the University of Virginia. It's actually a research group that um, has really worked to try to refine processes for schools and educate communities about risk and how to respond effectively. Um, I think those are good starting places um, for for someone who's looking to, to learn a little bit more. Thank you. I appreciate it. And if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, probably the easiest way is to email me. Um, I, just my first name, Robert, at roberttherapy.com. Um, my website is roberttherapy.com. And so um, please reach out. Um, I'm always happy to help someone if they're kind of stuck or they need a consult regarding, you know, this kind of situation they're dealing with or just provide some other resources for them, you know, as they look to develop their skills more in this area. Fantastic. Thank you so much again, Robert, for joining us. I think this has been um, really eye-opening, I know, for me and I'm guessing for our listeners as well. Great. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.